I'm Josh Cooperman. This is Convo by Design, and today we are taking a look back at some previously incredible design events. We're getting in the Wayback Machine and going to 2016, the Pacific Design Center, for a conversation about design rebellion. <laughs> This is a look back at a conversation recorded live in the Pacific Design Center in West Hollywood, California in 2016. It's a very strange experience for me, got to tell you, to rerun past episodes, including the original open. My voice changes every year, just like yours does. And while I've gotten, I guess I, you could say I've gotten comfortable with the, the recorded sound of my voice, strange cadence and often tangential leaps. It is very odd hearing these older episodes, but I do it because I started recording these conversations in 2012 for a 2013 Convo by Design launch. I did it because, believe it or not, when Convo by Design began, I was the only one there to record these events. Seriously. So I'm, I'm glad I did it, and I hope you are as well. I hope you enjoy this. This is a lot of fun. We'll get to it right after this. For over two years now, you have heard about my partnership with Thermosol. So you know that I have extremely high standards for Convo by Design partnerships. Thermosol is an extraordinary partner because there is this rare combination of intuitive design with exceptional performance. They have state-of-the-art facilities located in Round Rock, Texas, and a company that's about to celebrate 65 years offering excellence in form and function. The Wellness and Design Thought Leadership Series presented by Thermosol is a programming feature that regularly showcases remarkable design talent and how they do what they do and the manner in which they do it, allowing designers to emulate successful strategies and make smarter clients who know what questions for of top professionals. If you want to understand more about this company and their history, please check the show notes for the link to episode 221 with Thermosol third generation CEO Mitch Altman. He explains the history behind the company and really th that's what makes this company so special. Combine that with the cutting-edge technology, their world-class domestic facilities, and you have a company delivering predictable elegance upon which you can rely. And nowadays, how important is that? Thermosol.com. Welcome to day two of West Week. So bear with me. I'm going to be uh, reading the bios. I tried to memorize them to no avail. Uh, Eric Chang is the co-founder and creative director of the Brooklyn-based luxury furniture line Hellman Chang. Best friends with his business partner, Daniel Hellman, since the age of 10, the self-taught designers and craftsmen got their big break when the Four Seasons Hotel, Sex and the City, and Gossip Girl became their first three clients, respectively. The fully customizable Hellman Chang line is now represented by 13 designer showrooms across the country and completely benchmade one at a time in their 16,000 square foot Brooklyn studio. The duo is equally known for their unique, timeless designs and uncompromised craftsmanship, 
as they are for their popular national ad campaign featuring them woodworking in their studio in bespoke suits provided by Italian fashion house Canali. Most recently, Chang was selected and photographed by Annie Leibowitz as part of a global rebranding campaign by UBS Bank that honors entrepreneurs in creative industries. Please welcome Eric Chang. As an interior designer, Cliff Fong creates unique, personal, and often unexpected environments, drawing from various inspirations. His work is largely residential, but includes many notable commercial spaces, such as Michael Voltaggio's Inc. Restaurant and Pistola. In 2009, with partners, he opened Gallery Half, a sprawling emporium of 20th century design, European antiques, architectural elements, and art. He is the head of design firm Matte Black Inc. and is currently featured as a resident judge on the second season of HGTV's Ellen's Design Challenge. Cliff Fong. <laughs> Patrick Tai, FAIA, is principal and lead designer of Patrick Tai Architecture in Los Angeles. The firm is committed to creating an authentic contemporary architecture informed by technology, sustainability, and building innovation. The firm has a strong and diverse body of projects that include city-developed affordable housing, commercial mixed-use projects, civic art installations, and residences. Patrick was awarded the Mercedes T. Bass Rome Prize in Architecture and the American Institute of Architects Young Architect Award. Ty is a fellow of the American Academy. His firm's work has received numerous awards, including eight national AIA Honor Awards, and he has been published extensively. Ladies and gentlemen, Patrick Ty. So this morning we'll be scrolling through images, uh, first of some current projects in the April-May issue of Interiors. Uh, along with my, a couple of my personal uh, design inspiration picks. Then you'll see the work of Eric Chang, of Helman Chang, uh, which includes his furniture designs, images of he and his business partner uh, compromising those beautiful suits, and his design inspirations. Uh, then you'll see the work of Cliff Fong, um, including private commissions for a high-profile design aficionado rhymes with felon degenerous. <laughs> and uh, last you'll see projects by Patrick Tai, including La Brea Housing here in LA, private projects, and fashion designer Rick Owens, London Boutique. And we will have time for a short Q&A at the end, so please uh, think of questions for our design rebels. So without further ado, we'll start the slideshow. And I'd like to start with a quote by Sister Parrish. To not dare is to have already lost. We should seek out ambitious, even unrealistic projects because things only happen when we dream. And that might be a little bit kind of Disney princess fantasy quote, but it, it's, it's really true in the world of creating and design that uh, good things happen when you think big. So you're seeing a few uh, big thinkers from our April-May issue, and uh, you'll see a couple of my personal design inspirations, including 
Billy Baldwin's Garden in Hell for Diana Vreeland. She told Billy that she wanted to live in a garden, a garden in hell. And so she was absolutely enveloped in this crazy red chintz. And then Sister Paris started, started out uh, designing Howard Johnson restaurants and ended up designing the yellow oval room of the White House. So as we roll through uh, Hellman Chang, Eric, I wanted you to just uh, tell us briefly about your design journey. Sure. Uh, you kind of covered some of it. But uh, as you said, I'm best friends with my buddy Dan over there. And uh, back in high school, we were pretty nerdy. Instead of going to house parties, we were shacked up in his parents' garage, and we were building uh, furniture. We would uh, rent woodworking books from the library. His dad would pull the car to the garage. We'd buy crappy tools from Home Depot, and we would just kind of teach ourselves how to woodwork and just totally fell in love with the process. I ended up going to NYU. I studied uh, finance and marketing at business school there, and he went to Northwestern. He studied classical guitar performance. We met back up. It's a perfect segue. <laughs> and uh, we met back up in New York, and we both had day jobs went on Craigslist and found an old wood shop in Brooklyn. And this was before Brooklyn was considered you know, super hip as it is now. And we rented a little 50 square foot space in a larger wood shop that we shared with sculptors and craftsmen and woodworkers. And we just went every night after work till one in the morning, every Saturday and Sunday, and just kind of uh, just fell right back into it. And on a whim, submitted a piece to the Best of Your Awards with Interdesign Magazine, uh, ended up winning, and that was when we got the call from the Four Seasons, and kind of the rest was history from there. Uh, within about a year and a half, we quit our day jobs, and we were building furniture full-time. Um, and that's kind of how we got to where we are. So completely self-taught within design. Um, um, and then here are some of my inspirations. We get into that real quick. Um, I, I typically don't look at uh, other furniture lines or people within the industry for inspiration. Um, to me, where you find the best inspiration is through the emotional connection with people. And people like Ralph Lauren, Andy Warhol, Elon Musk are pioneers in their industry, not because of the reinvention necessarily of design, but of how they make you think and how they make you feel about it. And so if I look at it from that perspective, that gives me the basis from which I can guide the rest of my company and the rest of my designs. Beautiful. Cliff, tell us a little bit about your personal design journey. Uh, um, well, I, I studied art history at my university, and I've, I've always been interested in the arts in general. It was a big part of our, our it was something that our parents uh, strongly emphasized growing up. Um, I never really thought I would do anything in particular that, that, that sort of related on, on the amount of activity that I do now. I, I sort of thought maybe I would teach or I'd have a slightly more sedentary life um, because I come from a family of eggheads and they kind of do that. Um, but I, I started spending a lot of time in Europe during my adolescence because my, my father lived um, in Wiesbaden, which was sort of a spa town outside of Frankfurt. And I would usually spend maybe a week or so with him and then a few weeks traveling on my own. And, and going to museums uh, in European capitals, noticing architecture, um, cross-referencing a lot of that architecture art with historically important design. Um, so when I started working in fashion in, in my uh, late teens and early 20s, and I was traveling to a lot of European capitals, I started, my, my way of souvenir shopping was buying design. 
So uh, the, I think maybe in my early 20s, that's the first time I discovered uh, a Jean Prouvé chair or, or Hans Wegner chair. And for me at the time, it seemed like a very expensive thing. Now it's really expensive, and I don't think anyone, most of us can't really even touch that kind of furniture now. Fortunately, clients can. Um, but I started collecting this kind of furniture and bringing souvenirs home. And uh, one day, a, f a friend who had been at my house said, oh, maybe you can help me with my house a little bit. And, and they were going out of town, and they asked me to cat sit for them. <laughs> I had left fashion, and I wasn't working at the time. <laughs> I was actually living at the beach, and I, I was literally a beach bum. I think I'd wake up at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd pick something to do each day, maybe, like, do the laundry, so I'd put my laundry in the washer one day, put it in the dryer the next, fold it the third day. I was really, I mean, it was, it was perfect. Um, <laughs> then after cat sitting and, and, and fixing up that client's house, uh, a few friends had seen it and asked me to help them with their homes. I, the, the friend who I originally did that for asked me to do another home and another home, and, and that friend happened to be Ellen. And, and I think 20, well, no, 16 years later, I think I've done over 20 homes for her. And uh, now, actually, you know, you know, we've been friends for a long time. Now, actually, she rep represents very, a very small poor kind of percentage of, of, what that, of what occupies my work now. Um, but she happens probably to have the biggest draw of any of my clients. So... Uh, uh, we have over, I was telling um, Eric earlier, we have over a dozen active projects uh, on the East Coast, half a dozen on the, I mean, ha do over a dozen active projects on the West Coast, half a dozen on the East Coast, and, and have a few projects in other places in the world. Um, so uh, I think I went from being a beach bum to being very busy without actually, I think, really being so deliberate about it, just following um, the creative stimulation of, of what was uh, presented to me. So Patrick, as we're uh, running through some of your work, tell us what brought you to the design milieu. Well, I, I grew up back east. I grew up in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, Lowell is kind of an industrial mill town. And I think that was a, kind of my first, um, uh, where I learned an appreciation of the, of the built environment. Um, but I think having grown up there, I wanted something completely different. And like a, like a David Hockney painting, I was kind of drawn to, to the allure of LA. Um, and I came to LA uh, to go to school, and to st I studied architecture here. And then after studying, I worked for Frank Gehry, I worked for Tom Main, and I started my own practice. So um, LA to me was just kind of this amazing place to um, to begin a practice to and to to practice architecture. Um, our work is uh, diverse. We do a lot of high-end residential. We do we do a lot of affordable housing. Um, we do commercial work, um, but it's all kind of relates to um, you know the, the 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 cultural, political, social, economic conditions that we're, we're working against. So I think that's kind of the driver of of the of the work. Um, the inspiration that I showed I showed, I showed uh, Corbusier, and I think uh, like similar um, comments. It's not so much the, the work, but it's more like the, the attitude of this kind of overall. Um, uh, design uh, where, where, where Corb was not just an architect, but he was a thinker, a writer, um, a, an artist, 
um, just all design, kind of all-encompassing and, and timeless. At the, at the time, he was very kind of groundbreaking, but the work stands the test of time. And then I also showed uh, Rick Owens, who's a, a client and, and a friend. I did a few of his uh, stores. Um, and I show his inspiration just because I think he's kind of fearless in, in his field and he's ever, ever changing and um, willing to take risks and reinvent. And um, that I find admirable uh, in any field. And um, that, those are things that I try to incorporate into my own work. I love this notion of this cross-pollination or cross-cultural influence in design. And the three of you happen to have a, a through line that is fashion. Um, you having Rick Owens as a, a client as well as an inspiration, uh, Cliff's background in fashion, and then uh, Eric is clearly fashionable. And <laughs> connected with Annie Leibovitz and you know, the, the whole, and Ralph Lauren is a design inspiration. I would love for each of you to touch on the importance of uh, broadening your horizons and keeping your eyes open to influences such as fashion, art, other kinds of design, music, really anything. But the, but the, the fashion part is, is quite interesting and is often compared with design. So how does that resonate for you? <laughs> to be honest, I mean, Coming out at the age of 24 to the design industry and uh, not knowing anything about it, but just knowing that I loved it and I loved to design, I loved to create and work with my hands, uh, I'd go into these meetings with these big firms and these interdesigners and uh, you know, realize, my God, I'm going to have to pull everything out of my ass on this one. <laughs> um, but I'd always loved uh, men's fashion. And I always uh, dressed very well, uh, very influenced by my grandfather, who was a general. And I'd go into these meetings, and I'd be very sharply dressed. And immediately, they would kind of stand to attention, and they would take me seriously. And um, it was kind of like, you know, in the early stages, faking it till you make it. But it was a big part of uh, what I realized, the brand, what it would become, uh, being the face of the company. And um, I think there is certainly, if you put t yourself together well, I mean, that, that kind of intrinsically means that you understand things about proportion and design. Um, so that was a, an earlier part of our company and, and how we kind of developed relationships. Very subliminal. Um, but, you know, I also look at things like the automotive industry as well for inspiration. I think fashion and automotive are the two industries where they're the best at it. They've convinced uh, people to spend an exorbitant amount of money on things that are frankly, not necessary. I mean, you could easily buy a Honda Civic and get from point A to point B. You could easily go to the Gap. Um, but they're so good at tapping into the emotion of people. Um, and I really respect that. And that's something that I, I try to do um, with my business and my brand in a way that can tell a larger story, that can connect with people. Um, because we are really in the business of making the most beautiful places and the mu most beautiful products in the world. And in the trade industry, that's kind of been a little bit hidden to the end clients. It's kind of filtered through the designers like you guys. And if we are able as an industry to kind of elevate it a little bit and bring the sense of story and luxury and beauty and craft to the forefront, it can make your jobs a lot easier. You know, it should feel like walking down Madison Avenue and going to Givenchy, you know? And, and I've always wanted to promote the industry in that manner. 
from day one. So that's kind of the direction that it, um, in terms of how it developed the business and, and the designs. And Cliff, you worked with, you started with Sandy DeLal, is that correct? Uh, well, that's not exactly where I started, but that's sort of where I finished, kind of my, <laughs> my last uh, um, incarnation in fashion. But, but I, I think I've done just about everything in that industry, um, except I, I haven't been a stock person. But um, I, I think because I was sort of profoundly affected by by my study of, of art history and then also spending time in European capitals and seeing uh, really a progression of, of, of stylistic history, which you can see in architecture, you can see in the study of art, you can see in the study of fashion. You know, in America where we're a little thinner on history, you don't, all, all we know is basically what we know of the last century or two if you live on the East Coast. But um, there's, there's not really, especially in Los Angeles, all we know are, are either kind of um, spec houses, mid-century architecture, and a little bit of like early European-influenced architecture. But um, in, in my work in fashion, all, all, of, all of the things that I sort of love and sort of connected with as a child um, uh, sort of gave me a context for for everything I'd see when it came to, to approach design. Um, but I approach design in a way I think that, I'm, I'm not sure if a lot of people would understand in, in, unless maybe you worked in fashion or, or, or you really enjoy getting dressed in the morning. Some people kind of dress obligatorily and some people really see it as an opportunity to communicate. And I, and I also think that when helping someone design the look of their their interior space, their restaurant, their home, their office. Really, it's about communication. And if you think about putting on a, uh, a your, I don't, most people maybe put on their pants or their skirt first thing in the morning, and, and then they build around that. In a room, if you think about the most important thing, maybe it's the couch, maybe it's the rug, and then and then you build around around that, and and you kind of create a dialogue that relates to either your purposes that day when getting dressed or how you want to live. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting about fashion and design is that in in the mid '90s, during the rise of the contemporary. Uh, brands and and the denim companies suddenly there were a, a lot there were many more choices than just Ralph Lauren Gap or Armani for Americans and that industry expanded in a, in a really huge way um, I think now the the interior home furnishings market is experiencing a very similar expansion because people are realizing that they they don't have to have just like a, a couch from Ikea or Christ or whatever the basics might be. So I think people are enjoying that they can communicate something in the way they live, something that they can share with people that's very similar to the way people would share something about themselves in, in fashion. And, and for me, that's kind of the key. Um, and when I work on projects, I think it's most interesting to, to work on, uh, sort of like what Eric said, um, use, their use my client's personality or interest as a departure point for, for how, how things might ultimately look in the end. Um, it doesn't take any uh, particular education or, or 
taste level to go into you know, a, a boutique on, on Rodeo Drive and buy something head to toe. It just takes money. But I feel like when I recognize someone's individual style, when I recognize things that, that are kind of stimulating me, they're about a clever mix of things. So if, if you if you walking on the streets of New York, you see people who have great style. They're mixing something vintage with something designer, um, something basic from the gap with a beautiful cashmere sweater or a tailored piece of clothing. And to me, that's great style. Um, I think it works the same way in the home, where I, if, if you were to interpret an environment directly, it just becomes set dressing, or it can look a little bit cliche if you had a, a mid-century home and everything was from the mid-century. Um, so it, for me, it's much more interesting to, to create some sort of irony or, or to do something unexpected while still designing within the soul of the house. So if you, I relate that to fashion, you have to design within your own, you have to, excuse me, you have to dress within your own soul, but there are a lot of different ways to, to express something about your character and, and not just you know, something basic and direct all the time. So it, for me, it's a very, very strong parallel between fashion and, and interior design. And Patrick, what was it like to design for Rick Owens? Did he push your design boundaries in any way? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, <clears throat> yeah, he, he's an amazing mind. Uh, and it was a wonderful collaboration. Um, he, he's just so open. And uh, it, was, it was wonderful to experience that. Um, I, I think you know, our work, we're, we're always looking to, to try new things and, and experiment. Um, fashion is just one, one of the things we, we, we look to. Um, Industrial design, science. I mean, there's so, there's so much to, to draw inspiration from. I think I think it's important um, in order to grow, in order to um, move forward, that you need to have these kind of outside influences that kind of um, help influence the work in, in one way or another. Um, but I, I'm very much interested in collaboration. Uh, I think <coughs> the best work can come from a good collaboration. We we try to surround ourselves with the best people, and um, that tends to lead to good results. So um, yeah, I, I, I think finding inspiration in, in outside sources is crucial. And then finding the right people to partner with is, is crucial, or at least for us anyway. And you, t you talked about collaboration. Uh, was that a fairly collaborative process? Was he pretty hands-on with the boutiques that you designed for him? Yeah, at the time we were very much interested. You know, we're always looking at, uh, like I said, n new new fabrication techniques and new materials. And um, for him, we were we were working with a certain material and a certain fabrication technique that um, spoke to some of the things that he was interested in. So in that way, it was a it was a great collaboration because we were both interested in, in similar things, um, and we both kind of um, explored that together. So that's like the perfect collaboration. Nice. Uh, Eric, you have said building this business was never about the money. And now I know we all need money, a certain amount, to actually do your, you know, your bidding, your design bidding. So d is that still a driving force? You know, is, is passion behind design? Ultimately, passion is is everything. Um, <clears throat> like I said, being self-taught, I I didn't have like a set of rules to design within. 
so strictly, it, it just came from an emotional standpoint for me. You know when you have that, like, you guys know, you had that aha moment, you're designing something, you feel it. And it's not because you read it about it in a book and you're following a specific rule or guideline in design. It's just, it strictly kind of came from the soul. And uh, for me, that's how I design. When I had that little aha moment, <clears throat> when I had that emotional connection, I know other people will feel it too. And for me, design is about connecting with people through the medium of furniture for what we create with our hands. So um, if, if I do it with passion, I know that it will be recognized. I know that it will be appreciated. And I hope that it will sell, because um, ultimately that is the goal to keep the company moving forward. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was not about the money. I, I, had, uh, I came from an advertising agency that I'd started with a few other friends in college and that had become wildly successful. And I was doing that uh, primarily uh, in college and out of college. Um, and I left it. And my partners, you know, that company is now an $80 million company. And, you know, they have multiple homes. And, uh, I, I went with my gut, which was to be in a wood shop. I mean, literally, I was in my Soho loft office on a Tuesday, and then on a Wednesday, I was in the wood shop in Brooklyn with Dan, and we were sanding tables. And I didn't pay myself for two and a half years to rebuild something strictly out of a point of passion. Yeah, that's the passion design model, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Not getting paid for, for <laughs> several years. Well, we'll, we'll hope for the, the $100 million commission for <laughs> Elman Chang. Uh, how do you know that you're onto something different? How does that happen for you? When you, that, that aha moment that Eric talked about, how do you know that something's right and coming together in the right uh, way? Well, I, I'm not sure actually. <laughs> I, I don't tend to think of things uh, uh, in, in, in a reflective sense in, in the way that they might relate to to the outside. So, so usually if I'm designing from, hopefully always from a pure creative place, when I come across something that's kind of new or different, I think that's one of the most gratifying moments when, when, uh, when I create something that I didn't necessarily expect. Because I, I think, um, you know, it, during the creative process, it's easy to become a little bit complacent especially when you get a little busier because um, like for instance on jobs I don't necessarily enjoy some of the minutia like I don't like picking out toilets and faucets that, as much as I like furnishing um, so I think as as creative people we we can all tend to default to our go-to things our go-to colors our go-to you know toilets <laughs> I don't know. Um, but Sometimes when I'm actually in the space and I'm and I'm getting my hands dirty or or I pulled a selection of something and and I get to see it in the space, I think it's really important to always stay open to to something that could be greater than what you might initially expect. And when when that moment happens, I think it's it's a not only is it a revelation, but it's also an incredible feeling creatively to know that that you still have the potential to grow and, and, and create something new and fresh. But I don't actually, I, I, I wish I could say I knew how to do it every time. But, but I, I think it's just important to be open to the element of chance and to seeing something different, to open to be seeing, open to seeing something different all the time. And that affords you the greatest potential for having those aha moments. Patrick, uh, what, what helps you to not 
allow your work to become complacent? Do clients help, or what's your path there? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, we talked about inspiration, and you know, we, we like I, I don't look at design magazines that much because these days uh, design is everywhere, and there's there's so much good design. Um, we we try to, or I try to infuse some difference in our work to, to make it um, to make it stand out to, ma to make it um, new and fresh and in order to do that it goes back to the whole inspiration thing and um, it, you really need to dig deep to, to, to come up with a, an idea I, I think if a project has a strong idea uh, it can turn into something special and through this act of um, like uncovering um, the potential of each project, um, you know, hopefully that, that difference comes through. And you know, our projects, none of them really look the same. I'm not interested in a particular style, per se, but it's more about this discovery and um, this, this notion of, of trying, to, trying to do something different, whether it's working with a new material or uh, a new fabrication uh, technique or um, that, that, to me, is special, and that's what we try to do in our work. What about mistakes or crazy prototypes? You know, if you look back at a Buckminster Fuller type who was just making these out-of-this-world inventions that, and everyone said, you're crazy. And now, just a few decades later, some of these things are being implemented. Even Elon Musk, I'm sure people, you know, just naysayed his crazy ideas. He's, he's working on a battery that can power your home. You know, so what? What are the? What's the importance of uh, really thinking uh, forward and crazy? <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> I think that the only way you learn is by making mistakes. You know, uh, it sucks when it happens, but you know, after you get through it, you're like, wow, that was a great learning experience. Uh, you're never going to grow when people just heap, you know, compliments on you. Um, it's great for the ego, but nothing else beyond that. Um, <clears throat> but referring to like Elon Musk, or I don't know if it was him or Richard Branson, who, you know, they're, they're trying to get to Mars. And you were talking about fearlessness before. I mean, this guy said, uh, you know, he knows people are going to die on the way there, but we have to do it. I mean, who says that these days? What CEO of a company or politician could say something like that? I mean, that's true fearlessness. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's kind of a mistake when people die, but you know that to get to the next step, uh, <laughs> you know, you, it has to be done. It, um, maybe that's a bad analogy, but, <laughs> um, but I, I like mistakes because they're they're just awesome learning experiences. You know, you you know your limits, you test your limits, um, you humble yourself, and there's no better way to uh, evolve. I think, in my mind. Dying for design, Eric Chang. <laughs> How about you guys? Have you have you had any mistakes? Have, that I, have I ever made a mistake? Have you ever made a mistake? <laughs> uh, yeah, every day actually. Um, no, I think I feel the same way. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but yeah, you know, you have to. If 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 you're in, if you're if experimentation and, and yearning for something new is part of what you do, inevitably. You, you're not going to have a success all the time. So I think that's just part for the course and um, an inevitable part of the process. Uh, 
One of the reasons that I really enjoyed uh, putting this panel together was your different paths. And I'd like for you to each touch on why it's important for many paths uh, and backgrounds to be present in the world of design and the built environment. Eric, you're self-taught. Uh, you, you attended grad school at UCLA. You know, you've all come together to make great things and to push the envelope, to use another cliche. So why is it important to uh, have many paths in design? Anyone? Well, I think, uh, I, I think no matter what it is that you approach in life, the, the more experiences you have, uh, I, I think the more you bring to that moment in your life, whether, whether it's creative or, or not creative. So, you know, the more you see of the world, the more you experience different things, the more you stay open, the better your perspective is on, on, on what it is that you're being addressed with, you know, immediately. So the, I think the more you, one gets out there, the more open you are to suggestions, the more, uh, the more you experience, it can only enrich your, your creative output. Um, you know, the, the furniture industry is age old. I mean, it, it can only be reinvented in so many different ways. And I think coming at it from an outsider, uh, perhaps that give me a, just, a, just a slightly different perspective um, that I hope to you know, bring something more refreshing to the table. Um, and I think that's, that's really necessary. And I'd, I'd love to see other people do the same thing, not just for this industry, but other industries. Um, I think that's really important. Um, because it's so easy to get stuck in our ways. And it's a very slow-moving industry. You know, I'm constantly, it's like pulling hair. Like, I'm just like, I want to move faster. Um, but I, I think having a slightly different perspective um, is really, really helpful. Um, and um, I think there's a lot of young people coming out uh, in the industry today that are hopefully on that same path, um, truly talented. Uh, creating really unique products. So there's one in the audience today, John Pomp. You guys don't know his lighting. It's absolutely incredible. But he's also doing so much for the lighting industry in our, in our field. So um, it's really kind of refreshing to see other people come to the forefront. And my, I, to just to add to what was said, I think um, this idea of you know, diversity and differences is great in, in any field, but in design in particular, it, it can really um, enhance you know, the overall world of design. I think you know, these days where design is so ubiquitous, it's easy to just go out and, like someone said, furnish a mid-century home with mid-century architecture, but um, it seems like um, there's so much more that, that can be done these days, and um, by, by kind of t uh, taking from different sources, it, it only makes, I think, for a more rich experience. Sometimes I think rebellion can reside in knowing when to leave something alone to a certain extent. You're a maker, you work with materials. You have that room, I think it's one of Ellen's projects, where the structural wall is, is left open. It's one of my favorite rooms of all time. And you must know when to not overbuild. So how do you know how to leave something as it should be? Uh, well, it, one, one quote that resonates with me 
actually is, is a quote by Diana Vreeland, where she said, it's always important to take something away instead of to add. And I, I think a combination of that and living in Los Angeles, where we have a much more casual and relaxed lifestyle, uh, I guess if, if I'm going to use the fashion parallel again, there's a certain detachment to the way people dress here where no one wants to look like they work for a living or no one really wants to look like they cared too, too much about how they look and they're just sort of naturally like fabulous, right? Or, or, or beautiful or sexy, whatever. And, and sometimes when you see someone who's really studied in their aesthetic, there's something, I don't know, there, there's something about it that actually seems too deliberate. So where, where interiors are concerned, if, if, I, if I kind of use, use a, that, that analogy, I think people don't want to, or most of my clients anyway, wouldn't necessarily want to live in a really formally designed space. Or rather, that's not they would what they would come to me for. There, there are other designers in the more formal sense who, who would make carpet and, and drapes that match or choose a, a color theme or something where I tend to shy away from this a little bit. Um, but I, I think uh, my greatest hope is that I might come and go from a project and, and people wouldn't really know I was there. Hopefully they recognize the value of what I did for them. But, but I might create something that really feels like my clients did it themselves with kind of a, a, an, a, a nice level of cultivation or, or curation. And I think that that comes across if I make sure that I ju just don't overdo it. And it's not, it's not my nature, it's not my philosophy, and most of the people who come to me, uh, I, I think, also have this interest in, in being a little bit casual or detached from their environment. I, I love that you described the whole fashion thing while representing West Coast and East Coast. Yeah, that was great. Um, for me, uh, keeping things uh, Simple is very important. I mean, good, lasting design must remain timeless. That is that's a very key thing. Otherwise, it's going to stay in a particular moment. So when I design a new piece, uh, Dan and I also go back and we go in the shop and we actually prototype it ourselves too. I'd say the design is like 80% done, and then the last 20% is while we're building it. And it really is like sculpting. You're seeing it come to life, and you could decide to take something away here or add something here. Um, but that allows me to kind of know where and when to stop. But really, the, the ideal is the timelessness of it. And you can't be heavily ornate. It's got to be simple in form, yet it can be you know, elaborate and subtle details. Um, and that's, that's kind of my, my guideline. What keeps you from overbuilding? Well, I, I think I, I, we, we're probably all on the same page on this one. Um, you know, in architecture, there's a lot of factors that, that influence the project along the way. Uh, things get changed and budget concerns and all kinds of issues during the building process. But, you know, for us, I think it's really important that we try to maintain kind of that original intent of the project um, and make sure that that kind of shines through in the end. Um, so, yeah, I, I think our... Our, our big thing is to try to you know, maintain the, the, the integrity of the project from the very beginning to, to the very end. And oftentimes that means you know, fighting for certain things that, that are at risk of um, being eliminated from a project. Um, and I think that's part of, part of the conversation too. Can you be rebellious on a budget? <laughs> I think so. I think you know, oftentimes um, projects with lower budgets can, can be um, 
can be wonderful. Um, they force you to do things that you might have done otherwise. They force you to, to look at new ways of um, inventing. Um, so uh, constraints can be sometimes huge opportunities. Um, so I don't see it as a, as a problem. I, th I think it's, it's a, sometimes it's good. Is that true for both of you, too? Yeah, I, I think so, absolutely. I think, you know, in, in life in general, we all have to exercise restraint. So for me, it's not really a surprise to have to do it for somebody else in, 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 in that creative process. Um, but it's, it is exactly as, as Patrick said. If you, if you need to, if you have a budget, you need to be a little more innovative. And a lot of really beautiful things are born out of that, that innovation. Um, I, I think one of my favorite things is is seeing something very humble, a very humble material used in an innovative way. And and I think one of my least favorite things to see is an environment that is full of bells and whistles or too many luxury finishes. So so the budget issue for me is generally a non-issue within reason. But I didn't pay myself for two and a half years. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> Since we're here in Los Angeles, um, why do each of you think LA is a good place to, uh, oh God, so many cliches, think outside the box, push the envelope, whatever, be rebellious. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright said, you turn the world on its side and everything loose will land in Los Angeles. And architects and designers <laughs> flock to this city to experiment. So what is it about LA, and you're an East Coaster, you can, you can speak to Brooklyn if you want, Brooklyn in the house, um, but, but what is it about this city that is so inspiring? Uh, well, I, I think uh, the, the really nice thing about about this part of the world is I think people are a little more open to to all possibilities, and I, maybe this isn't exactly the right way to put it, but but I think also people here aren't educated in design in the same way they might be in an older city like like New York or Paris or London, where where the level of design cultivation is such that I think people might choose to have to live in a in a slightly more formal setting where here people are, are a little more relaxed and open and the lifestyle is very relaxed and and a bit lazy so the idea that you could create something new for somebody is is a little bit uh easier to receive here than i think for somebody who has worked with a history of 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 well-heeled decorators um you know, the, I guess the other thing here, also I could get in trouble for saying this, is that there's also a lot of new money here. So there's, there are a lot of people who I think do very well, but have not really learned to live with their money. And, and a lot of that comes from, from the tech world. Obviously some of that comes from the entertainment world um, and, and in a place where there's always a lot of innovation. So people who, who have kind of come into money a little earlier are also, I think, a little more open to how to spend that money, or rather they might actually need direction on, on figuring out how to live a more interesting, stimulated, fuller life and not wasting their money or effort. So I think there are a combination of factors that I, I think make for great creative opportunities. Uh, <clears throat> talking about Brooklyn, um, I mean, 
right now it's kind of it's been a big thing Brooklyn New York and the kind of the world is looking at Brooklyn in terms of what's going to come out next and it's become this epicenter for art and design and the energy there is just unbelievable which is you know why why I've loved being there for the past 10 years but uh, I also love LA I spend you know uh, so much time out here it's it's like my second home at this point you are listening to a really fun chat from the Pacific Design Center's West Week in 2016. We'll be right back. So listen, wallpaper's having a moment, a well-deserved moment that is allowing designers to craft and create in new and amazing ways. Convo by Design has a new partner this year. This partnership includes participation in our remote design house Tulsa project, of which you will be hearing a lot about this year. I've been working closely with an exclusive group of partners, and I am absolutely thrilled to be working with York Wall Coverings. This company has been crafting exquisite wall coverings for over a century, with an archive that dates back to the early 18th century. This deeply rich history provides inspiration for the future, and the designs available through the York Wall Covering Studio have long been lauded for their authenticity and craftsmanship. This art, artistry, and history combined with a commitment to continually reimagining the manufacturing process allows York Wall Coverings to provide a consistently exquisite product. For options and inspiration, find them online, yorkwallcoverings.com. You can also find their store locator tool online at yorkwallcoverings.com for a location near you. And uh, the way young people have appreciated art and design is just really refreshing. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of new things coming out of the West Coast um, that, you know, the way that whole industry works, it gets somewhat validated by being purchased in New York. But uh, to see that energy in L.A. is just so inspiring. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love coming out here. And how about building? That Tiger Tail residence, for example, is extraordinary. And what is it about Los Angeles that allows you as an architect to build that way? You know, I think Southern California has always been a, a, a testing ground for, for architects. Um, you mentioned residential design. If you go back, uh, architects like Schindler, Neutra, Lautner, they all came to L.A. to, to experiment and to, to, to create new architecture. So there is kind of a freedom here. I think it's just kind of, I don't know, embedded in the, 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 the environment. Um, and you, you go to another generation of architects. So much of that, uh, what's very much relevant in the architecture world today, started here in Southern California. If you look at, you know, Frank Gehry and Tom Main and Eric Moss and Frank Israel, um, what they started here in LA really kind of transformed the the the, the field. So um, there is, this, I think, it comes with a sense of um, freeness, optimism. Um, there's definitely an engagement with the landscape. And the weather, of course, has something to do with it. Um, and, the, and the people, you know, the people here might be a little bit more um, adventurous. So I, all, I think all those things kind of factor into the, the, the fact that, you know, LA is a pretty exciting place. And, um, and you know, now, design-wise, uh, I think in architecture and interiors, um, you know, a, a lot of the, you know, most kind of important work is, is, is coming out of the city, whether, whether it's, being produced in the city or made in the city, but it has some kind of connection with LA, and that's pretty exciting. And you're a native East Coaster, mm -hmm. so you feel like you have more freedom here, or you probably wouldn't have stayed. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't imagine doing what we do. Um, 
in Lowell, Massachusetts. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a great place to. I, when I came to LA, I never thought I'd stay in LA. I thought I'd go back east, but um, you know, LA kind of I don't know, just gets under your skin, and the more you stay here, the more you actually appreciate it. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a great place for me to do what I do. Great. Well, we'd like to spend a few minutes with uh, audience questions, so please don't be shy. I want to see hands. We have rebels here. <laughs> Anyone? Okay, I have a question. Okay, here we go. To paraphrase the question is how to integrate uh, art into interiors. Well, uh, for me uh, and, and my team, art is a really, really important part of, of our program and working with clients. Uh, we have a lot of clients who are art collectors, some of who are on the board of museums. Uh, we have a lot of clients who are interested in art. Um, but I, I think one as a as a cultural mirror, art is really really important. And I think the more we surround ourselves with it, the more we understand ab about the the creative world we live in. Um, additionally, I think it's always important to support young creative work, and and I love emerging art. I think it's much more interesting to have. A piece of art on the wall with some meaning than to just choose something decorative for its color sensibility or or, or its subject matter. So uh, any opportunity that I get, I, I'd like to share fine art with, with clients. So I, I think it's really, really important for the clients who already have existing collections. Uh, we, we often design around a lot of that work because I think it's important to be seen. Uh, and, and I don't think... Um, I think maybe 10 years ago, art was something not primary to most people. So it was just something to occupy or fill some space. Um, so now, where I think much, many more people are interested in, in the world of fine art, when you find a great piece of art, I think it's as important as, as your lighting or a beautiful chair or sofa. So, so it's all part of the same, the same uh, it's as equal in its, in its importance in the dynamic as, as anything else. I don't know, but the avant-garde architecture I saw in Dubai, I, the project they are going to do in, in Abu Dhabi with Jean Nouvel. Jean Nouvel. Uh, I thought that's incredible. I never see something like that. Uh, maybe it's not too much design. Uh, maybe if you go inside of shops or something, uh, but, um, but I never see something like there, you know. Um, and another hand, maybe the danger, the design here, or maybe here is to, to mean around the world because after everything is, is the same everywhere. No? But maybe um, I, I found like, like too much standard, you know. Too much standard. <laughs> so the, the importance of avant-garde design. 
no? I, de, I, I, don't, I don't, when you see the Anabrin land, you see that's its originality, you know? Okay. Because there is a creator, it's, a, it's an artist. But uh, maybe design has the danger to be too much rationalistic mm -hmm. and uh, this minimalism, you know, is necessary to mix up with Baroque or with other things. Thank you. So, how do we keep design uh, avant-garde? It's basically the gist of our conversation and not too terribly rationalist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we touched on it before. You know, there is this kind of um, globalization of design these days, where before you could find, you could go to a flea market and find a very special piece. Um, these days, it's pretty hard to do, right? Because um, you go on first dibs, and all the good stuff is there, and it's very expensive. You can't afford it, and now everyone knows about it. So it's that kind of, um, I don't know. Um, I guess. Um, design uh, exposure that, that's good, it's, it's very good because everyone appreciates, it. a lot more people appreciate design now than they had in the past, but it's also maybe more challenging to do something that is a little bit um, out of the norm. And I think that's good for us because it keeps us on our toes and keeps us trying to reinvent um, what, what we do. Um, so I think maybe that answers the question. Thank you for staying on your toes. The, the design world is better for it. Um, unless there are any other... I have a question. Okay. Do panelists speak of their perspective, their New rebels. Uh, I think I kind of gave a shout out to John over there. <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, there's Codor Design out in Seattle, a young woman out there. She does tremendous work. I uh, really respect her work. For, I think in my industry, um, there's been a movement, at least I hope there is. My, my, my passion has always been about proving to the global design community that the best design in the world and the most finely crafted products in the world can actually come from America and can come from Brooklyn, New York. And uh, thank you. Um, and uh, I think that is something that is really important to American designers and their clients. Uh, when we started the company, uh, it, was, it was really, you know, Dan and I just loved making furniture and we loved doing it the old fashioned way. Like we love the hand chiseled mortise and tenon joinery. We love the oil rubbed finishes. And uh, we started the company basically in 2007, 2008, right when the economy crashed. And pre that time period, it was a, it was a consumer consumption-driven economy. And after the economy, after the recession, uh, it wasn't that they couldn't afford the furniture anymore, it's that they wanted to invest in better products. And they were looking for a story. They were looking for American crafted. They were looking for the finest products. Um, and it just so happened that our company kind of shattered that from the rooftops. And so we, we kind of just fit right into what the, the transition of uh, consumer, uh, uh, I guess, culture was. And so since then, there have been other companies out there, like John's, who does these beautiful hand-blown glass fixtures. Um, that really just resonate on an emotional level with everybody. And you're going to see a lot more of that, I think, in the, in the coming years, if you haven't already, obviously. Um, 
I'm never good at playing favorites because I think there are a lot of there's it's such a broad and diverse industry. There's so many people who are making impacts in in different ways. Um, uh, obviously, these two are doing a lot to to support and and keep moving this industry forward. Um, I think it's incredible what Rick Owens is doing with furniture as well, not only fashion, but furniture. He's, he's one of the few people whose who's contemporary creative work I really, really, uh, I really, really am drawn to. Um, but I, I, think maybe the, the, I think maybe the people who could be credited the most with, with moving this industry forward are the people who are our are, are patrons, the people who really help support New ideas, new new practices, new aesthetics, new philosophies, and you know, without eccentrics, individuals, or rebels, we, we there's no there's really just no way to move forward. You know, our, our our country has a history of of kind of making us feel like we're supposed to fit in when when we're young, and really the best thing you can do is is be an individual as as, as early out of the gate as possible. And 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 hopefully you're appreciated for that when when you come into your creative life and your practice. Are there any young firms or makers? Yeah. Well, I think our our, our field is um, constantly evolving, and it's important that we kind of um, recognize that and uh, and recognize how it's being done. So for, for me, it's, it becomes with like new, new means of um, innovation. Um, robotics, I think, is a, is a huge uh, influence and, and will be in the future. So that's something that's going to you know, affect what we do. Uh, new ways of building, um, new ways of in, implementing uh, materials in, into the work. So for me, I, I don't look at a particular person per se, but more about um, uh, like the new, newest ways of, of doing things. And I, I think that that's something that um, we all try to keep on, on top of and something that is going to drive the, the profession moving forward. Well, please join me in uh, thanking our panelists, Cliff Bong, Eric Chen, Patrick Tai. I know you love talking about great partnerships the same way I do. Let me tell you about an incredible design partner who is working with us on the Convo by Design Remote Design House Tulsa project, Franz Wigner, a company created in 1899 in Attendorn, Germany. They started manufacturing brass beer taps. In 1921, the company expanded to Buenos Aires, manufacturing brass faucetry. The company launched in the U.S. in 1992, and Franz Wigner Premium Collection began in 2008. Franz Wigner crafts high-quality, premium faucets with the objective to create a design-oriented luxury product that exceeds the standards set by world-class designers and architects. Pretty heady stuff, and they do it. If you see a Franz Wigner faucet, it is stunning. You use Franz Wigner faucets, and they perform flawlessly. Product you can depend on after over 120 years designing a truly stunning faucet line. For more information and to check out the entire line of faucets, visit franzwigner.com. So I'm going to spell it for you, right? <laughs> F-R-A-N-Z-V-I-E-G-E-N-E-R.com. Thank you, Franz Wigner. Thank you so much to the Pacific Design Center and this incredibly distinguished group. Loved it even more now than I did then. 
like wine, art, and architecture. A good conversation only gets better with age, and I am so happy that I could share this with you. Thank you to Convo by Design partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Article Furniture, Moya Living, York Wall Coverings, and Franz Wigner. Please make sure to check the show notes for links to each of these remarkable companies. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to subscribe and listen to the show. I appreciate you. Until next week, remember why you do what you do, be well, and take today first. Mm-hmm.